The book of Proverbs gives a relatively simple and profound reminder to us in chapter 3, verse 11. The writer, Solomon, writes to his son. He says, Son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So the basic reminder there is do not misjudge, do not miscalculate, do not look lightly on the discipline of the Lord. Don't become callous about it. Don't become bitter about it or complaining about it. And maybe more importantly, don't fail to humble yourself under the disciplining hand of the Lord. Don't grow weary, he says in another way, weary of his reproof, sinking down to a level of despair, discouraged that you'll never get through or that you'll ultimately be crushed by it. All of those thoughts are unworthy of the Lord and everything that he has done to demonstrate his love for us. They're unworthy of the Lord as they would be of an earthly father in all the ways that he loves us when he disciplines us. We are to balance all that in light of the truth of his love. So as we're under discipline, we remind ourselves of how helpful it is supposed to be. Of how there still remains in us so much that needs to be rooted out in terms of our flesh And our sin, how much still needs to be purged and purified for the sake of the Lord. How through the process of this hand of discipline, there will be less of us and more of the Lord. Don't despise the discipline of the Lord. This verse, of course, is picked up by the writer of Hebrews who warns us not to think lightly of the Lord's discipline. And he goes on and he adds in Hebrews chapter 12, for the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. He has to remind us of that because there's a tendency in every one of us, whenever we are in the middle of whatever the loss is, whatever the pain is, Whatever the suffering is, whatever the, whatever the uncomfortable nature of the, of the relationship conflicts, the unresolved conflicts, the illness, the diagnosis, the poverty and loss, the humiliation, whatever the circumstance is that the Lord is taking you through right now as a part of His disciplining hand, it's never pleasant in the moment. It's always painful. But he gives us this reminder because we have a tendency to forget that behind all of the pain is a purpose. Behind all of the pain is a design, a lesson, a cultivation of a specific end, which he says is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The purpose isn't the pain and it's not the misery. The purpose is the product. It is, in some way, a lesson that you need to know about, some way you need to be educated, or it's in some way that you need to be guarded and protected from something, prevented even from doing something, from going down some path, or in some cases, it might be the need for correction, rebuke in the midst of some sinful behavior. But all of it has that same end goal, the peaceful fruit of righteousness, the pathway to blessing, down the pathway of righteousness. 
Now, all of those truths are really an excellent introduction for us to the book of Jeremiah. We've been looking at it for the last couple of weeks, or, or, or last week and this week. The book of Jeremiah, it, it is a, a message that came to this prophet in the midst of Israel's worst days of discipline. A message to Israel as they were suffering under discipline. And it's for them, we might say nationally, politically as an entity, but whether it's national or whether it's individual, the approach and the purpose, the message is the same. All of God's discipline is grounded in His love. All of it is aimed at the same purpose. All of it is, is um, you might say, secured by His undying commitment to us as individuals, or in this case with Jeremiah, to Israel as his people. He is, he is sending on them an enormous amount of affliction, but he's doing it with redemptive purposes. Now, we've been looking at this book, and not looking at the whole book. We unfortunately don't have the time for that, but we're just looking at two very special chapters right at the center of the book, chapters 30 and 31, which have been identified by, um, by commentators and by, by scholars as the book of comfort, which the book of comfort, I guess you might say technically is chapters 30 through 33, uh, and some might even show, throw in chapter 29, but all of these chapters are written specifically to people who had been carried away into exile into Babylon, and they were written as words of comfort that the Lord was giving to Israel in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their discipline. They were written to these who had already experienced or had already seen God pour out His wrath and His punishment, and then God gives this word to Jeremiah to give to them. Now, if you were with us last week, then you understand that this comes with a certain historical context. These were prophecies that came to Jeremiah uh, at the turn of the century from about 627 B.C., the beginning of his ministry, down through 587 B.C., and on really beyond that, 40-plus years of ministry for this prophet Jeremiah. And it came during one of the most unique times in Israel's history because right in the middle of that time, there was a discovery, a discovery of a book in the temple, a book of the law, which refers to the Torah or the Pentateuch or what we, uh, what we refer to as the, the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the books of Moses. These would have been the, the scrolls on which were written the Ten Commandments with all of the other laws and all the other commandments of God which are, are given in those five books, there are all kinds of laws that had to do with ceremonies and sacrifices with the temple and the priesthood, with, with all kinds of morality and marriage and property and just everything to do with life in Israel. Many of the laws are contained in the book of Deuteronomy. They're basically case laws God gives the Ten Commandments, or He restates the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and then beginning in chapter 6 through 26, He gives all sorts of examples or cases 
to help Israel understand how to work out those Ten Commandments in various aspects of their life. That law had been handed down to Moses in about 1405 B.C. and then entrusted to Israel after that, but they basically never kept it. They basically set it aside, if not physically, at least mentally and spiritually, very early. God knew that they would never keep it. Moses even knew they would never keep it because he had already seen in his own lifetime how fickle and sinful the people were in light of God's goodness. So all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, there were prophecies about how Israel would fall away from the law. Deuteronomy spells out a whole series of blessings if they obey, but curses if they disobey. And it explains and it prophesies how they will most certainly disobey and eventually be taken into captivity by foreign nations. But before, as Israel came out of Egypt and went into the promised land, the land that God had given them, they set up the tabernacle, the temple, they established the ceremonies. And yet within a few hundred years, they abandoned God. They set aside His law. They set aside the worship of Him and turned to idolatry. The idolatry of the nations that surrounded them. Now, not only did they do this, but somewhere along the way, they apparently lost completely the actual written text of God's law. The physical copies. Israel's religion uh, passed down from generation to generation, perhaps like other pagan religions around them, somewhat... uh, contained in ceremonies and traditions and, and, and maybe a, a, a few uh, recited um, catechisms or something like that, but apparently no physical copies of the law were in the land. And as we saw last week, around the time of Jeremiah's ministry, there was one of the greatest kings, if not the greatest king in Israel's history, a man named Josiah, who came to know the Lord at age 16 he, came on, he became the king at age 8 and came to know the Lord at age 16, began to seek the Lord and, and led Israel in this time of restoration. He sought to rebuild the temple, which had fallen into ruins, and through that uh, restoration project, this book, this Torah, was rediscovered by the high priest Hilkiah. And when they took it to King Josiah in the palace and read it, this godly young man, 26 years old, heard the word of God and he ripped his robe in grief for how awfully Israel had disobeyed God. It had been centuries since people had walked in obedience to God. Centuries since they had heard these laws. And because of that, the abominations of Israel were great. Now, you can't fully understand Jeremiah without understanding that historical background. Because so much of Jeremiah is written in light of Josiah's attempts at these spiritual reforms. And ultimately, you have to understand that even those attempts ultimately fail because the people respond only superficially. The repentance is not genuine. And much of Jeremiah's preaching is aimed at exposing that kind of superficiality. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look with me at Jeremiah chapter 4. Jeremiah chapter 4, 
one of the several places where Jeremiah talks about this. He says in verses 1 through 4 of that book, If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and sow not among the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. Now you may not realize it, but the language there comes almost directly out of Deuteronomy chapter 30. This language about circumcising your hearts and and uh, the wrath of God and the nations blessing themselves through Israel, all of that stuff was contained right there in the book of Deuteronomy. So Josiah was there when uh, the, the scroll was found and he read the scroll and he began to preach what was there, the message of Israel. In fact, if you go back to chapter 2, he had confronted Israel Because of their spiritual state, he says in verse 4, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me, and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in the land of deserts and pits, in the land of drought and deep darkness? In a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land. You made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For across, for crossed, excuse me, for cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, and send to Kedar and examined with care. See if there's been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled. O heavens, at this, be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is Jeremiah's preaching. I mean, he's preaching, you can just imagine, right alongside the discovery of this book of the law. He's reading everything that's in there. He's realizing more deeply than he's ever realized. He's realizing along with Josiah just how deep has been the offense of God's people. How quickly they abandoned their God and tried to to dig for themselves these broken cisterns, these leaky cisterns. Like so many people do. Chasing after the fleeting uh, answers, the deceitful answers of the world, thinking that they were answers in this pagan idolatry that surround them, all the while pouring themselves into these gods 
who had no answers for them. Jeremiah chapter 6, you can go to another passage where he says in verse 16, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads, look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. I set a watchman over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. All of these passages were, were, were reflections of Jeremiah's preaching during the days of Josiah. He was there and he was telling them, here's the book of the law. Look back to the good way. Look back to the ancient way. Look back to the ancient paths. Look back to this book, this law that was discovered that, that we so quickly turned away from. Look back and listen to it. And their answer was the same. We won't listen. We won't pay attention. Israel had drifted into idolatry and futility. They had completely forgotten God. And then, after all of that, after all those years of neglect, all, after all that futility, all that foolishness, all of that hard-heartedness, 800 years at this point, it's as if right at the end, God offered them one more chance. He gave them, in a fresh way, the law. Like he'd given Israel all the way back in the time of Moses. He, he providentially allowed it to be discovered. And then he gave them a godly king who wanted to keep the law. And he gave them prophets like Jeremiah and Zephaniah or a prophetess like Huldah who were calling the people to faithfulness to God. He gave them all of these things and still they refused to listen. Jeremiah chapter 7, he goes into the temple, he stands in the gates and he begins to preach. He says in verse 8, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. And you can hear, again, the Ten Commandments right out of the book of Deuteronomy. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing your abominations. He tells them in verses 12 and following, Go, look to the northern kingdom. Look to Shiloh where my name used to dwell. See what I did to them. I'll do the same to you. He's just driving home the superficiality of this performance. This so-called reform. Go over to chapter 13, verse 23. Driving home how utterly futile their efforts have been. How superficial their efforts have been. How they continue to disobey the law of God. He says in verse, verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard his spots? Then also you can't do good who are accustomed to do evil. I will scatter you like chaff driven by the, by the wind from the desert. This is your lot, the portion I have measured out to you, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. 
Jeremiah 21, Joseph, uh, Josiah by this point has died and other kings have come in his place, kings that took Israel back to their idolatrous ways. This particular oracle comes in the days of Zedekiah after 597 BC, probably early on in his reign. And we read this down in verse 8. And to this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. That's almost verbatim out of Deuteronomy 30. I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Choose life. So much of Jeremiah is like that. Just saturated with the language of the Torah. Saturated with the language of Deuteronomy. To study Jeremiah, you really need to do it with the book of the Pentateuch open right next to you. With the book of Deuteronomy especially open right next to you. In fact, uh, liberal scholars in the 19th century uh, caught on to this and, and were so enamored by it, they began to actually fabricate this idea that Jeremiah wrote the book of Deuteronomy. That he and a, a group uh, that they just kind of labeled the Deuteronomist um, wrote this scroll and hid it in the temple so that it could be discovered so that they could change the religion of, of uh, Israel from um, another group that they called the Elo- Elohist um, and, and transform Israel altogether. But all that stuff, of course, is ridiculous. The, the, the reality is Jeremiah is so saturated with the book of Deuteronomy because his heart was completely the Lord's. In fact, if you look in chapter 15, this is what Jeremiah says about this discovery of the book. He says in verse 16, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. The book of the law was found, and Jeremiah says, I devoured it. I devoured it. You can imagine a godly man like that who has been living and, and um, trying to minister within Israel without the benefit of a copy of God's word, and then they find the word. And Jeremiah describes it like he consumed it. He probably was there every day asking for the scroll so that he could take it and pour over it and copy it himself, make his own copy, just laboring over each one of them, nourishing his soul, feeding on it like he would his own daily food. Sadly, however, it's not the way everyone responded. Many of them ridiculed him, ridiculed anyone who was so zealous for the word of God, zealous for his law. And so, the Lord, after all of this grace, after all of this kindness, reached the point where, ultimately, He would be mocked if He didn't fulfill His promise of curses. He laid out all these blessings and the curses, and for God to just ignore them would have been a mockery of Himself and of His Word. 
And so just as he had warned them so many, many years ago, God fulfills his word and he fulfills his curses and sins against them foreign nations, particularly in this case Babylon, 80 years earlier for the northern tribes, the northern kingdom in 622 BC, it was the Assyrians who carried them away. But God's hand of discipline was finally leveled in the most severe way. As a, as a fulfillment of all of those prophecies. But God immediately wanted to remind them that this isn't the end. I'm not doing this because somehow I have turned away from my election of you or my choice of you as a nation. I'm not doing this because this is ultimately the punishment which will annihilate you. I am doing this, as with all of God's discipline, I'm doing this because of a a divine purpose of redemption, of renewal, of purification. His chastening hand had come against them in the strongest of ways, if you If you want to read about some of that, it's recorded in a number of places. Even in Jeremiah 52, some of the gruesome and devastating details of what happened in the year 586 particularly. But the section that we're focusing on is the section of hope. Because after all the the judgment, after the invasion, after the destruction, after the slaughter, after the captivity, after all that stuff had started... God commanded Jeremiah to write to Israel, much like the writer of Proverbs, to remind them that the disciplining hand of the Lord comes from a loving father. It may be severe, it may be painful, but it has a godly purpose, and its purpose is to produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so he writes for them these chapters, Jeremiah 30 and 31, and as we said last week, these chapters which are not arranged chronologically. The book of Jeremiah is sort of an anthology of, of various oracles that were given at different times throughout his ministry. But when they were finally collected, particularly by Jews in Babylon, they arranged them in the order so as to put Jeremiah 30 and 31 right at the middle of the scroll of Jeremiah. This was a Jewish way of emphasizing what is the most important part of Jeremiah's message. So that whether you began the scroll from one end or the other end and worked your way frontwards or backwards, you always end at what they would consider the climax there. Jeremiah's message of conciliation and comfort and consolation. These were the words out of all of Jeremiah's prophecies that Israel came to cherish more than any others. In fact, it's reflected in the New Testament as they pick up these words as well and make frequent reference to these chapters, Jeremiah 30 and 31, which is what we also know as the New Covenant. All these things put together into a single scroll, they, they sort of existed independently. You can identify many of them, by the way, with the same opening words You see it in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 1. The word 
that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. You, you see that over and over again throughout this book. Jeremiah 7 verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the war, Lord. 11 verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. 18 verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. 21 verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Or 27. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. 32. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. 34. 35. 40. Over and over again. You see this little indicator. Of a, of a new oracle that had been given and a new oracle that, uh, that was sort of a self-contained group. And we find the same thing here in 30. You find it again in 32. And all of that sort of indicating that 30 and 31 were, were one, if you will, complete unit. One oracle that was given at a specific time. And furthermore, whenever you look at these two chapters, they're broken down into nine separate sayings, or if you want to think about it this way, nine separate poems. Most of them, or most of the chapter is in poetical or lyrical form. So you have nine separate poems that make up Jeremiah 30 and 31. Each one of them can be identified themselves by the repetition of a similar phrase. You see it in verse 2, thus says the Lord. Then again in verse 5, thus says the Lord. Then in verse 12, thus says the Lord. Down in verse 18, thus says the Lord. You go to chapter 31, verse 2, thus says the Lord. Verse 7, verse 15, verse 23, verse 35, thus says the Lord. In fact, at the end in the final poem, you have a doubling of this because he says it again in verse 37 as a part of that last poem, thus says the Lord punctuating the very end. So nine total poems, each one of them communicating a message of comfort, a message of hope in terms of a contrast. Every one of them have some sort of contrast that takes place in them. And I might add on top of that, just for your own sort of uh, uh, footnote, you can't see this so much in the English text, but if you were reading it in the Hebrew, each one of these nine poems alternates between the, the masculine and the feminine address, sometimes addressing Israel as a he, sometimes addressing Israel as a she, but back and forth and back and forth throughout these nine poems, it just alternates, creating a kind of rhythm in the Hebrew language as you read through them. So nine poems that present the promises of comfort and restoration to Israel in the midst of their captivities, these messages presenting the kind of contrast so that Israel can understand that the reality that they're living in is not the ultimate reality that God has planned for them. Comparing their present circumstances physically, spiritually, with what's coming, with what the Lord has designed. Now we're going to take a couple weeks to go through each one of these, all nine of these, nine poems that present the promises of the new covenant. And and to fully understand the new covenant, you really need to understand all of these. So we can begin just in... The first four verses of chapter 30, the first poem that's given to us there, and we can just call it from ruin to restoration, from ruin to restoration. And, and you can just sort of begin with the, with the um, oracle heading there, verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, and then the poem in verse 2, thus says the Lord, 
the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes or the captivity of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I'll bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers and they shall, they shall take possession of it. These are the words the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. So Jeremiah First of all, tells us, or excuse me, God tells Jeremiah to write these words in a book. That's that's because this particular message was not to be delivered in Jerusalem. It was not to be delivered in the temple. It wasn't to be delivered where Jeremiah was living. He was still back in the land of Israel. Jeremiah wasn't able to verbally deliver this message. Many of the oracles that you see in Jeremiah were not originally delivered in a written form. They were originally delivered in an an oral form. In fact, that's why much of the book of Jeremiah is probably in poetic form. Because God designed it so that it could be easily memorized in the rhythms of poetry. And delivered, if not by Jeremiah, then by those who heard him. The, The message could be delivered and spread over and over and over again but through these sort of oral means. But this particular one, just like the one that we read about in Jeremiah 36, this particular one was to be written down before it was ever spoken. And it would be carried by a messenger far away to the land of Babylon where it would be read to the Jews who were there. By the way, this is, this is where synagogues began. There were no synagogues before Babylonian captivity, but once Israel was carried into Babylonian captivity, there was no temple, there was no place for them to gather, and so they began to gather in houses where they would, on the Sabbath, read from the the scriptures to one another, and this began the tradition of synagogues that exist even till today. Even after Israel returned to the land of Israel, they continued this tradition of synagogues where they would gather together and read from the scripture. Well, Jeremiah writes this scroll and sends it to the Jews in Babylon and instructs them to read it along with all of the other words from God, along with all the other scripture that they were reading in their synagogues. He encourages them to read this on their Sabbath gathering to hear the word of the Lord. And this is what he writes down, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. That becomes kind of a repeated refrain, by the way, throughout this book of comfort. You see it here, you see it uh, down in chapter 31, verse 27, verse 31, verse 38. You even see it in chapter 32, this phrase, behold, the days are coming. A very clear message that God has something in store for the future. This isn't present, this is future. This isn't current reality, but this is ultimate reality, where God is going to take them. And the audience who heard these words would be those who were still experiencing all of the suffering. They were all under all the oppression of the land of the, uh, of the enemy. Most of them were in some form of slavery. Most of them had lost everything that they own. It had been stripped away from them. Many of them had been the aristocracy. They were the, the wealthy, the landowners or, or whatever. Some of them were in, even in the royal family. They had been stripped of everything. They had lost their freedom, 
Many of them had lost family members. And here they were suffering under this. But the promise of the Lord came. And he says, the Lord is going to restore the fortunes of my people. Now, once again, that phrase, like so many others in the book of Jeremiah, comes directly out of the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look with me at Deuteronomy 30 for just a moment. Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will do what? Restore your fortunes. And have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord, your God, has scattered you. So you see, Jeremiah is simply delivering the message of the book. It's just the message of the Torah. God will restore your fortunes. The word is uh, sebut or sebut. Uh, Literally, um, it has to do with captivity it can have the meaning fortunes in some context but most of the time it has the the idea of captivity for example in psalm 68 whenever the psalmist says that the the king has led captivity captive this is this word here in fact the new american standard if you have it probably indicates in the marginal note that that's an alternative translation and i think it's the best translation Because you see here in Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 3, the parallel statement. Uh, We we don't have time to talk about parallelism, but in in, uh, Hebrew uh, uh, literature, Hebrew poetry especially, uh, much of it is written in parallel fashion. Two synonymous statements back to back. And you see here in verse 3 that God will restore your captivity and... He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord has scattered you. So Jeremiah is simply repeating this promise that the Lord had given to Israel so long ago. And he's reminding them of this promise that the Lord had given. That although the Lord had dealt severely with them, although they were suffering and languishing under his disciplinary hand, God was going to remember his kindness to them. He was going to remember his mercy for them. And he was going to restore them. He was going to restore them out of their captivity and restore them back to their land. In fact, uh, in, right there in Jeremiah, he talks about, in verse 3, I will bring them back to the land that I gave to the fathers and they shall take possession of it. And then he adds in verse 4, the clarifying words, these are the words the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Those are not synonymous words there. Those are two separate 
kingdoms. That is the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. This was a message for the northern kingdom as well. And, and we'll see this, by the way, whenever we get down into Jeremiah 31. It becomes much more pronounced down there. But this is a message of hope that was delivered not only to the Babylonian captives, but also to those who were in Assyria, who had already been taken captive 80 years earlier. And Jeremiah is emphasizing this point in his very first poem. That God's promise was to all of Israel. Even in Deuteronomy, he had anticipated this divided kingdom because when Moses wrote about the captivity that would come, he didn't speak about captivity in a single place. It was a captivity, a dispersion in all kinds of places. God already knew there would be some Jews in Assyria. He knew there would be some Jews in Babylon. He even knew that there would be Jews who were scattered beyond that. And so in Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, the Lord your God will restore you fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where, your Lord, where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcast, he says in verse 4, are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. So God already knew that this captivity was going to be multifaceted and it was going to be spanned out over many nations and really over many years. And yet in these three simple verses, Jeremiah is announcing that just as God had fulfilled his promise at curses, so he will fulfill his promise for blessing. Just as he had fulfilled in such a severe and literal way his promise for captivity, He will fulfill his promise for restoration. He will restore them. Words taken directly out of the book of the law. All the way back then, God knew Israel's heart. All the way back then, he knew that the commandments that he gives were beyond their capacity in the weakness of their flesh. All the way back then, he knew that they would reject his ways. They would fall under his curses. They would be carried off into captivity. And in their captivity, there would be those who remembered his blessings. They would take him to heart. They would eventually return to the Lord. And he would restore them. The reason, by the way, that he'll do this is fully revealed in these two chapters. It's because not just the pain of their suffering, but it's because the Lord will eventually do a work in their hearts. He'll regenerate Israel from within. He'll give them a new spirit and a new heart. He will give them a heart to obey. Now we know this because the New Testament talks about it again and again. It's called the new covenant. It's the reality of what was purchased for us by the blood of Christ. All of that wrath that was poured out on Israel, all that judgment that was poured out on Israel, all of that pain and all that suffering, Christ stepped forward to take our place under God's wrath so that God's wrath is poured out on him. In all of our disobedience, the price is paid for by Christ. The price is paid by Christ. And as a result of that, God is able to forgive your sins. 
And he's able to reconcile you to himself. And he's able, because of that, to pour out to you not curses, but blessings for those who place their faith in Christ. This is the promise of the new covenant. It was ultimately provided for and purchased by our Savior. But this is all for the future. The original audience who heard this were never given the assurance that these things would be fulfilled in their lifetime. In fact, most of them would never even see the land of Israel again. Only a few Jews who were taken into captivity would ever actually make it back to the land, their homeland. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah tell some of that story, and even then it's clear that their hearts haven't changed. They're just as idolatrous as they were before. It's not to say that God doesn't forgive sins. It's not to say that God was withholding His grace to them in captivity. It's not to say that they were not individually reconciled to God. One of the Jews who would have read Jeremiah's scroll was in fact none other than Daniel. Daniel, the godly example in the Old Testament, who walked with the Lord, who knew the Lord, who trusted the Lord, he read In the book of Jeremiah, we're told in Daniel chapter 9, and he read and understood all of these words, and he understood the prophecy, and he understood the coming restoration, and he turns around and he prays in Daniel chapter 9, one of the great prayers that you'll find anywhere in Scripture, a prayer of repentance and a prayer of trust and a prayer of faith, that God would completely fulfill all of these words. And yet still... It was a promise that was yet to come. It was a promise for the days to come. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will do this. But even though they didn't know the timing, even though the delay might have gone beyond even their physical return to Israel, even though all of that stuff was for the future, They were to take heart that as sure as God brought the curses, God would bring the blessings. He couldn't do one without the other. He couldn't give them all the curses that he prophesied and not given them the blessings. He couldn't give them all of the the pain, all of the suffering, without also bringing them all the honor and all the relief. As sure as his words in Deuteronomy 28 are fulfilled, so his promises in Deuteronomy 30 will be. And Jeremiah is announcing that. There's a second poem here as well. And we find it in verses 5 through 11, once again indicated by this introductory formula in verse 5, thus says the Lord. But this poem takes a different slant and, and we could title it From Panic to Peace. From panic to peace. He, he mentions their ruin and their restoration. Now he talks to them about this sense of panic. Thus says the Lord, we've heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hand on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why is every face turned pale? Alas, That day is so great, there's none like it. It's a time of distress for Jacob, and yet he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, 
I'll burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no longer make a servant of him. They shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I raise up for them. And fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar, your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I've scattered you. But of you, I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure. I will by no means leave you unpunished. Here, Jeremiah reminds them of the severity of this discipline. He wants them to understand that the Lord is not going to, he's not going to dial back the hand of discipline. He's going to punish them and he's going to punish them severely. He takes them all the way back to remember that day when Babylonians overran the city. And there was a cry, he says in verse 5, of panic, of terror, and not peace. That, by, by, by the way, that's a, a slap in the face of the false prophets who repeatedly were telling Israel, oh, you can sin all you want and get away with it. You can sin all you want and there's going to be nothing but peace. Jeremiah 6, 13, from the, last, from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They've healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Or Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 13, I, then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, you shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine. But I will give you assured peace in this place. Jeremiah 23, they say continually, those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say to him, no disaster shall come upon you. So here Jeremiah, after the fact, is reminding them that promise that you were hoping in, that lie, that false hope, whenever you were going your own way and you were thinking that you were going to get away with this, that promise of peace didn't come to pass. All there was was terror and fury and panic. Not the carefree promises of peace. He even describes the scene what you would presume to be the bravest among them, their men, their soldiers, holding their stomachs like a woman. He asks a sort of sarcastic, rhetorical question. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Of course not. But it highlights the chaotic scene during the fall of Jerusalem when every man had his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor, every face turned pale. Maybe it was just the sheer fright of what they were going through. Their stomach became uneasy, vomiting if there was anything left in it after the starvation. Or maybe it was just the utter disgust at the mutilation of bodies all around them. But the bravest of men holding their stomachs in writhing in pain. Alas, he says, verse 7, very strong word in Hebrew for grief and woe. That day is so great, there's none like. It's a time of distress for Jacob. And yet, and yet, as bad as it was, he shall be saved out of it. 
It's kind of like the writer of Hebrews. Kind of like the writer of Proverbs. Don't despise the discipline of the Lord. Don't grow faint under His hand. His, his hand is severe on you. And yet He has a purpose. He goes on, verse 8, It shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break His yoke from off your necks. I will burst your bonds and foreigners shall no longer make a servant of him. We don't have time, but again, that's language coming directly out of the book of Deuteronomy. It's a promise, not only of salvation from their current distress, but a promise that Israel will never again be subjugated to foreign powers. Foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. And then he adds in verse 9, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I will raise up. That's a reference to the messianic king. And if we had time, we could turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and read about a covenant that God made with King David where God promised to David, I'll set a man on the throne of Israel, one of your descendants, and there will always be a descendant of David who sits on the throne. Here Jeremiah is announcing that God has every intention of fulfilling that prophecy. These days are coming when God would install his messianic king. Verse 10. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar, your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. He says they're going to be saved. He's not suggesting, by the way, that they can't be spiritually saved at the moment. Many of them were saved. Daniel was saved. Esther was saved. Mordecai was saved. Many of them were saved, spiritually speaking. But the salvation he's talking about here is national. To bring them back from the land of their captivity to the place over which God would send a promised son of David to reign over them, of course, who is We learn in the New Testament none other than Jesus Christ. And all the language that Jeremiah is using here comes straight out of 2 Samuel chapter 7 as a part of that covenant that God made with David. He promised, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I'll plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and never be disturbed again. So there's a promise of a land. And then violent men shall afflict them no more. I'll give them rest from all their enemies, he tells David. And now here's Jeremiah repeating those things. He intends to give them what? Quiet and ease and none to make them afraid any longer. And then he ends the poem in verse 11. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I've scattered you. But of you... I'll not make a full end. Remarkable. The contrast between the fate of Israel and the fate of these other nations. And and by the way, this is a phrase that God uses throughout the book of Jeremiah. He says it, for example, back in chapter 4, verse 27, I will not make a full end of you. Chapter 5, verse 18, I will not make a full end of you. Chapter 46, verse 28, I will not make a full end of you. He wanted to emphasize that point. Because this is the tendency whenever we fall under the disciplining hand of the Lord and we're under the severity 
Whether we reach the point of doubling over in pain and holding our stomach or whether we're just sort of entering into that phase. This is always a temptation is that you begin to see the hand of the Lord on your life and you begin to think that his design and his intent is to make a full end of you when he's elected and he's chosen you. He's telling Israel, I'm not gonna do that with you. I'll do it with Assyria, they're gone. Moab, Ammon, Babylon, as a political, as a national entity, they're gone. They do not exist anymore, but not with Israel. I will not make a full end of you. And all of it born out of God's love. He had repeatedly told them that he could not do this because he had chosen them. Because of his determination to love them. There at the end of verse 11, I will discipline you in just measure. I will by no means leave you unpunished. I will not deny my word. I will not forego the the curses I had prophesied so long ago, but I won't make a full end of you. The other nations will be eliminated as an act of judgment, but for Israel as a nation, their suffering would be for the purpose of redeeming them. Of redeeming them. In other words, God is saying the punishment of Israel was integral to their redemption. God knew that his discipline was necessary as a step in order for him to fully accomplish the work that he wanted to do among them as a nation. Same thing that's true for Israel nationally is true for you individually. You may not understand God's hand of discipline in your life. But you need to realize that he wants to work it out for your good. You need to humble yourself under the disciplining hand of God. You don't need need to be tempted to forget his goodness or doubt his wisdom or question his love. Because for the moment, all discipline seems painful. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. Well, seven more poems to work through for us to get the full message. We'll come back to that in a couple weeks. Let's stand together and be dismissed by a word of prayer. Lord, we are grateful for your electing love. And right, to, right now, today, Lord, we confess our wayward hearts that rebel under your disciplining hand. We see the foolishness of our way where we ourselves at times try to dig out broken cisterns that hold no water. Lord, there is no path of peace but your pathway the ancient pathway may we look to it may we yield to you in all things may we trust in your sovereign design may we be broken under your shaping hand that we might be your people completely and holy 
for the sake of your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.